Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We have been until now uh, in the book of Leviticus recently. We have been in the priestly material. We have been in the material, the argument about P, the P source. The argument is, is it an early source or a late source? Everyone pretty much agrees on P, the theology of P, pretty clear. Um, we'll talk about it for a few minutes um, in a minute. Uh, but there's an argument. The only real argument is about an early P or a late P. Um, in broad strokes, is this actually the instruction and the Torah that the priests used? And that's an early P. Or is this a late P, which is post-destruction of the first temple, um, and it's kind of remembering what used to happen and making sure they get it down. So kind of a way of lovingly remembering what happened uh, in the temple. So there's early P or late P. That's, that's the argument. Um, but everyone agrees on P, on P's theology, on P's approach. Um, and so we're going to look, uh, so we've been in just the P source. I'm going to share, uh, with you at home. So those of you here in the room need to look up to the screen. So when we talk about the material from which the final redactor puts together the Torah, the five books, first of all, we remember there was a, four book collection right remember this mm-hmm. yeah, we believe thank you for that genesis exodus leviticus numbers we get added on to that deuteronomy we get the deuteronomist so the sources that so it's 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 codified in stages it's redacted in stages the final redactor we're not sure who that is But the final source is the D source. So if you recall our sources, all right, so we have J, E, P, and D, right? These are the sources from which we get the final collection. The earliest sources are what? Which two? Yes. The earliest sources are J, E. What does J stand for? Oh my God! Jewish. Jewish. I keep thinking they're going to be so bored. We've done this so many times. Security. (laughs) Oh my God! J is the Yahweh, the source that uses Yud Hey Vav Hey for the name of God. E is who? The Elohist. Good. The Elohist, the one who uses Elohim for God. These are our two earliest collections that gets edited together. So this is the northern and the southern tradition that gets put together into the national story, probably around 1000 when it's being, when the nation of Israel is, uh, is forming. 1000 BCE. Yes. So Solomon, David Solomon. Yes. So it's coming. The nation is has been a loose confederation of tribes. 
It is now becoming a nation. Those tribes are becoming a unit. So the North and the South have to be brought together. Um, and so their source material, their mythic history has to be brought together if anyone's going to buy the national history book. So J and E are redacted. They are edited. P adds a lot to J and E. Whenever we see a genealogy tacked on to a J or an E source, that is P. P is very concerned with genealogy, very concerned with tracing things back to Aaron, of course, right? And sometimes to Moses. Um, so we get lots of uh, that from P. So P edits J-E and does some additions and does some funky stuff. In J and E, you get God often anthropomorphized. God has a will. God punishes. God responds. God gets jealous. God gets angry. That never happens in P. Never. For P, God is a force. God is an energy. God does not have feelings. God does not think. God does not wish. God does not long. That is J-E. So P is the priestly material, the priestly author, the priestly redactor. So we have some authorship, right, of the priestly material, but we also have P redacting and adding to parts of J-E. So, all right, so Deuteronomy is its whole other thing. We're not going to talk about that right now. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at under P, there is a subsource, H, the holiness code. Israel Knoll, who I learned with, I had the great good fortune to learn with in Jerusalem at Hartman. Israel Knoll, who is an expert on all things sanctuary related. So the Mishkan and the practices of the Mishkan and later the temple. His book is called Sanctuary of Silence. Um, and he calls it the holiness school because it's not one person. These are not authors. These are schools of thought. So he calls it HS. He calls it PT, the priestly Torah, the priestly instruction. Torah means instruction. He calls it PT and HS, the priestly Torah and the holiness school. All of this stuff that we're going to look at from our Parsha today, we're, our, we have a double portion of Acharimot Kedoshim. We're going to be focused on Kedoshim. Um, Kedoshim is the holiness code. So this second half of the book of Leviticus is from the holiness school. So when we look at the holiness code, we are looking at a whole new approach to very old ideas. P is seriously concerned with what? What is P's main concern? The rituals. What are the rituals there to do? There's a concern that the rituals are addressing. Keeping the energy good. Purity and impurity. This is what the priestly Torah is concerned with. Purity and impurity. Keeping the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the temple space pure. Why does it have to be pure? Because the presence of God cannot be where there is impurity. It, it repels the divine force, which is only pure, which is only good, which is only, we're going to see Kadosh. Okay? 
So P's big concern is keeping things pure so that God's presence can dwell in the Mishkan, because without that, the Israelites are toast, right? That's the force that protects Israel. God has to be able to be there. Yes? Okay. So this idea of purity is to, is to allow God's presence to be uh, with Israel, to, really directly among the Israelites, to protect them. Uh, and for that relationship to be um, a close relationship. So it's about um, Kerub. It's about you know coming close, right? Sacrifice, korban. That's all about coming close, bringing God close, bringing us close to the divine. Okay. So that's P until H. What I just said is all P until H. H is new. H is a new idea. H takes P. And the teachings of P, we think it's, the one theory is that it is a priestly author. The holiness school is, is a priestly source, is a priestly school, a later addition, a later evolution of priestly thinking. The argument is, does it precede or, or follow? <laughs> Thank you. I'm like, is there the word for pro? Okay. Does it precede or does it? Follow the prophetic school. This is the big argument in the biblical scholarship world. Does H, HS, if you want to go with Knoll, does HS precede or come after the, the prophetic material of the early prophets? Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Okay, so that's the big argument. Knoll believes and then sets out in his book to prove um, that HS is a response to the prophetic schools. The holiness code, the evolution in priestly thinking, priestly theology, then the legislation we get from that, that change in thought is a direct response to the prophets who are addressing a crisis in Israel. And so it's a, it's, it's a response to both the crisis and to the critics who are criticizing that the priestly school, that the priestly theology does not address the victims of the crisis. Okay. All right. So P is only concerned with purity and with the rituals that need to be in place in order to keep both the people and the space pure, to mitigate as much as possible impurity. Impurity is normal. Impurity happens all the time. It's not a problem that it happens. It's a problem for the cult. It's a problem when it comes into contact with the sancta. That's a problem, right? So so all of the ritual is to keep the people and the space as much as possible, free from impurity. When people are impure, they do not participate in the sancta because they can't. Okay, um, so that's what P's concern is. So now we're going to look at the beginning. Bert's favorite stuff. <laughs> we're going to look at the beginning of the Holiness Code. So let me just briefly say that the Holiness School 
is <laughs> is either preceding or following the prophets, Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, who are all coming to address a crisis in Israel, which I'll get to. The question is, is it a response to the the prophets or does it precede the prophets? We, we're not going to solve that today because that's an ongoing argument. I buy Knoll's argument that, that the holiness school is a prophet, is a priestly response to the criticism of the prophets to their former theology. They have a, he calls it a revolution. That is not just an evolution. He calls the holiness code a revolution in priestly thought. And therefore their approach, you know, to everything that goes on. Um, okay. So, uh, we're going to look at some of the priestly material that is the holiness school. All right. By Deberti Ryan Moshele Moore, something new and different. God speaks to Moshe saying, speak to Ko Edat B'nai Israel, the entire congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, Kedoshim to you, holy shall you be, Ki Kadosh Ani Adonai Elohechem, because I, Yudhe your God, am Kadosh. You shall each revere your mother and your father and keep my Sabbaths. I, Yudhe Vavhe, am your God. Do not turn, do not turn to idols or make molten gods for yourselves. I, Yudhe Vavhe, am your God. When you sacrifice an offering of well-being to Yudhe Vavhe, sacrifice it so that it may be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the day following. But what is left by the third day must be consumed in fire. If it should be eaten on the third day, is it an, it is an offensive thing. It will not be acceptable. The one who eats of it shall bear the guilt for having profaned what is sacred to Yudhe Vavhe. That person shall be cut off from kin. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, Yudhe Vavhe, am your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal deceitfully or falsely with one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am Yudhe Vavhe. You shall not defraud your fellow Israelite. You shall not commit robbery. The wages of a laborer shall not remain with you until morning. You shall not insult the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. Ani Adonai. I am Yehovah. You shall not render an unfair decision. Do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. Judge your kin fairly. Do not deal basely with members of your people. Do not profit by the blood of your fellow. Ani Adonai. You shall not hate your kinsfolk in your heart. Reprove your kin, but incur no guilt on their account. <clears throat> you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against members of your people. You shall love your fellow Israelite as yourself. I am Yotevavhe. You shall observe my laws. You shall not let your cattle mate with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not put on cloth from a mixture of two kinds of material. If a man has carnal relations with a woman who is a slave and has been designated for another man, 
but has not been redeemed or given her freedom, there shall be an indemnity. They shall not, however, be put to death since she has not been freed. But he must bring to the entrance of the tent of meeting as his guilt offering to Yudhe a ram of guilt offering. With the ram of guilt offering, the priest shall make expiation for him before God for the sin that he committed and the sin that he committed will be forgiven him. When you enter the land and plant any tree for food, you shall regard it as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden for you not to be eaten. In the fourth year, all its fruit shall be set aside for jubilation before Yudhe Only in the fifth year may you use its fruit, that its yield to you may be increased. I, Yudhe Elohechem, am your God. You shall not eat anything with its blood. You shall not practice divination or soothsaying. Your men shall not round off the side growth on your head or destroy the side growth of your beard. Hence, payas. You shall not make gashes in your flesh for the dead or incise any marks on yourself. I am Yote Buffet. This is tattoos. So when everybody freaks out about tattoos, this is what it's talking about. Do not degrade your daughter and make her a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry and the land be filled with depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and venerate my sanctuary. I am Yudhe Do not turn to ghosts and do not inquire of familiar spirits to be defiled by them. I, Yudhe am your God. You shall rise before the aged and show deference to the old. You shall fear your God. I am Yudhe This this phrase, Mipne Seva Takum, is put on Israeli buses. So where we put reserved for blah, 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 it says, Mipne Seva Takum, before the aged shall you stand. Really? Right? That's how you know you're in the land of Israel when Torah is what's used to tell people to do the right thing. With strain, when strangers reside with you in your land, you shall not wrong them. The strangers who reside with you shall be to you as your citizens. You shall love each one as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I, Yudhe am your God. You shall not falsify measures of length, weight, or capacity. You shall have an honest balance, honest weights, an honest efa, and an honest hin. I, Yudhe am your God, who freed you from the land of Egypt. You shall faithfully observe all my laws and all my rules. I, Ani Adonai, I am Yudhe Vafe. Okay. So what did we just see in that, um, in that chapter, chapter 19, the famous chapter uh, of the Holiness Code? What are we seeing? We're seeing something different than we've seen in P before. Sacrifices are important. You, but who's it addressed to here? It's addressed to the people. It's addressed to the Israelite eating the sacrifice, not the priests preparing the sacrifice. You see the shift. So you see that you say you have keep my Shabbat. Don't profane my Shabbat. It is very important to keep Shabbat. The rituals are important. The laws around holy time and about how one deals with sacrifice is important. They are important. However, now what do we see added on top of that? Daily behavior between people. So there are two kinds of commandments. Bain Adam Lamakom, between a person and the one we call the place, God. Bain Adam Lamakom and Bain Adam Lachavero, and between a person and other people. So 
he has mostly ever cared about ben adam lemakom. How are people supposed to act vis-a-vis the divine? What are the mitzvot? What are the laws? What are the commandments about how one is to do stuff in order to have a right relationship with divinity? Now we see within the priestly material for the first time how one behaves with one's neighbors, with one's people. That now becomes a component of the right relationship with the divine. But at the beginning of this whole business of chapter 19, the first sentence says, Kedoshim Tihiyu, holy shall y'all be. This is the first time we see holiness applied to behavior. H is the first time we see Kedusha as having something to do with human behavior vis-a-vis other humans. This is a new Concept. This is a new idea. This is P reconstructed. Kadoshim to you. Holy shall y'all be. This is the first time we get this. That has not been the understanding of Kadosh until now. This then is in addition to the purity concept. So they're now both added together. Yes. Must be pure and holy means relationship with other people. Yes. Would you also is this before or after the first temple? Is this before or after the first temple? So there's an argument about P. We don't know. I accept an early P partly because I just anthropologically want it to be true. I want this to be material that was actually what was happening in Israel and that we have it. You know, like I, rather than it's later and it's a memory and it's la la la. So it's kind of my fantasy. But it's also when I've read the arguments, I wrote a paper for school, for rabbinical school on early or late P. Um, and, and I was more convinced by the material for an early P. But I, I realize a lot of it is wishful thinking. It seems so obvious to me by the writing technique and the information in the writing that there are different sources for the material in the Torah. But how do the Orthodox deal with this? They don't. They say they it's don't. all yeah, written so, by God's yeah, hand. Absolutely. And how do they justify then all the differences? That's where we get commentary. Look at how many times we've looked at something and I'm like, don't read this, but read that because they have to deal with something that doesn't match. But they they find creative, sometimes really creative ways. I mean, think about the whole creation one, creation two. Male and female, God created them both. Then we get the creation in, in Genesis 2, we get the creation of Adam and then the creation of Eve. How, how do you harmonize that? Who's the female? In male and female, God created them both. Who is it? Who is it, people? Who's the female? No! Genesis 1 says male and female, God created them both. Genesis 2 says God creates Adam, then God creates Eve. They can't, they contradict each other. Well, that... If it came from God and it's all true, then obviously there can't be a contradiction. So there must be a female created before Eve. Who is it? Yeah. Thank you. Or the first creation is non-binary. It's Lilith. So that's another possibility that they go to, is that it's one being, and then in Genesis 2, it is split um, into two beings. But But one of the popular ones is 
first created is Lilith. And she is kicked out of the garden. And she's so mad about it that she seduces men at night and takes their seminal emission at night and has demon babies. So that seems plausible. Like I said, it gets very, very creative. Thank you. I have a question is, um, I, when you're talking about that these commandments that other, how to act with other people are a component of how to be in right relationship with God and not just you should do these because they're good. Oh, for sure. But is that implied or do you think yes. it's explicit? It, it feels like it's sort of, we're just implying, oh, it must be because God's saying it, but it's not necessarily so that to do these things, it's so that you will be in right relationship with it. It is now understood to be a part of Kedusha. Kedusha now means how I treat you. We are to be an Amkadosh, a holy people. There, there, there's no way it's not related. Well, is it in the, is it explicitly in? God says Kedoshim to you, you shall be holy. And here's a whole bunch of ways you do that. Pay fair, pay a, a day laborer their cash because they need that cash. Like right. all those things we just read, that is how you are to be kadosh. So, okay, let, may, maybe this will sell you more on it. Just tell me if it doesn't, but maybe this will help what I'm about to do. All right. So let's look at the evolution. And this is all from, this part is all from Israel Kno. This is all Kno. So he brings, where do we, where's the first reference to kadosh that we have? By the way, there is no kadusha at this point. There's no noun. There's no holiness. We call it the holiness code. They don't, right? So um, we get this term kadosh. Okay, where's the first place we see it? We see it in Breshit on the screen. It, I guess I kind of gave that away. Vayivarech Elohim et Yom HaShvi'i vayikadesh oto, right? Vayivarech Elohim et Yom HaShvi'i vayikadesh oto. So God blesses what? The seventh day, Vayikadesh Oto. What does it say here? Declares it holy. Meh. Don't love it. But what does God do with the seventh day? God sets it apart. This idea is about setting something apart from everything else. Because it has a closer relationship to the divine. It is close to God in some way. That is why it is Kadosh. Because it is Kadosh, because it's close to God, it gets special treatment. Things get special delineation around it when it is identified as Kadosh. So in holy time, there are things you can't do, right? In the holy time of Shabbat, what are we told in the Torah? You can't make a fire. You're not supposed to collect manna. You're not supposed to monkey with the world. You're supposed to leave it like it is. All y'all's work, you shall not do on Shabbat. So there are restrictions that change the way we normally behave when it comes to things that are Kadosh. That is kind of the death. One of the ways you know something is Kadosh is because you have to behave differently in relationship to it. Okay. All right, so the first place we get in Torah is this idea of holiness in time. What is the next thing we're going to get? Holiness in space. When God saw that Moshe had turned aside to look, God called to him out of the bush. Moshe, 
Moshe, he answered, Hineni. And God said, do not come closer. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you stand, Admat Kodesh Hu. It's Admat Kodesh. Adama, land, Kodesh. Because God is in the sne in a different way than God is everywhere else, God is concentrated in the sne in the, uh, what's it in English? The bush. God is concentrated in the bush. And because of that, the ground attached to the bush is Kodesh. It is holy. It is set aside. There are different rules. You cannot wear your shoes on that ground because it's holy. I remember having this argument with my grandmother, a blessed memory, Mama Faye. And she, we were lighting candles at her apartment, just the two of us. We were alone. She lit, you know, her candelabra every Friday night. And she said, you have to go put on shoes. <laughs> I said, we may have to go put on shoes. We're just lighting candles. She said, to light candles, you need to put on shoes, Amy. I was like, in the Torah, <laughs> it says that uh, Moses was to take off his shoes because the ground was holy. She looked at me and she says, Look who thinks she's Moses. Go put on your shoes. It's all about separate. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's a mix. It's separate as we see in these examples because it is somehow more godified. It is special. Yes. It is set aside in a special way. It also though means there are more restrictions Mm -hmm. around interacting with it. Special doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want and just have it because it's so wonderful. Well, if you take, like, example of leaving something behind on the vines and in the fields, that's separate. There's nothing – what makes it special is that you're not so greedy as to take it all, but there's nothing special about the wheat, or is there maybe? No. No. It's the behavior behavior. of not consuming everything in acknowledgement that the land belongs to God. And God has ordained that God's land shall provide for people who don't have enough money to have land. Oh, okay. You just, yeah, it's the behavior behind the separateness that's important. Yes. Not, not the object. For, for holiness in people. Right. So not so much here with time or with space. It seems to be all about God. But okay. We're, I'm, I promise. Hopefully for the two of you, I'm going to, I'm going to hopefully pull this all together for you. So hang on to it and you too, if I don't get, if I, if it doesn't work, <laughs> better. but right, you're better. Um, so we're going to, we're going to tie that together. We're going to tie that together. And, and I, and I'll tell you the cheat. I'll give you a, a, a hint. It's imitatio day. That's how it's tied to God. Okay. Let them be ready for the third day. Genesis 19 for on the third day, Yorebepo will come down on the sound of the on Mount Sinai. You shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, beware of going up the mountain or touching the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death without being touched by being either stoned or shot. So you don't have contact with them. Beast or person, a trespasser shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. So this is saying the mountain, because of its contact with the divine that will be coming down on it, is now to be treated as kadosh. And therefore, there are very serious restrictions, right, about contact with it, just like Moshe at the burning bush. All right. So now let's look at some of the stuff that Knoll brings 
to talk about what the holiness school is responding to. So we're going to get this from Amos, but, but what happens in Israel is that, um, is that there is like, like I said, there is a crisis. So in the eighth century BCE, so this is the time of Amos, Isaiah, like in the eighth century BCE, there is a change in philosophy that we see in the prophetic schools. Okay. Micah, Amos, Jeremiah. So Micah is the one who preaches a lot about the gaps between portions of Israelite society that has clearly become problematic. Like it's not okay. There's always going to be people who have more and people who have less, but there has become a crisis in the eighth century where the gap is now a huge issue, a huge problem. So in the first part of the eighth century, there was an expansion and Israel was doing very well. In the north, they took the Golan. And in the south, they took the Negev all the way to Eilat. So that was a massive expansion of Israelite territory, kind of the longest it ever was, was the Golan to Eilat. So that's a massive expansion. Who gets paid a lot of money when you have military expansion? The soldiers, the officers, right? The, whoever's involved in the industrial military complex, military industrial complex, um, become powerful, influential, wealthy, well-connected because the king's happy with them, right? All the rich people are happy with them because it, it's expanded their trading routes and their trading territory. So they are rewarded generously. Um, high officials, uh, folks, uh, in the, in the military. Vaguely familiar. The other thing that happens when this massive expansion and all this wealth paid to the folks who are doing that, the other thing that happens for the regular people is what? Inflation. Prices go way up. Prices go way up. As you're funding the military industrial complex and all of these expansive wars, prices for the regular person goes way up. For the regular people in Israel who were not high officers and not big time warriors and not the folks at the, you know, at the places of reward for all of this, what are they for the most part? Poor, right? They are poor, but they are, what's their business? They are farmers. They are the regular folk were farmers. So if a farmer all of a sudden doesn't do well for a couple of years in this environment, then they can't buy seed for another crop. And if they can't buy seed for another crop because they can't afford it, they're not going to have a crop to yield revenue. So what happens? They starve, maybe, or if you don't want to starve, what do you do? Hmm? Sell the land. You either sell the land or you sell yourself. It's like what happened in Egypt. I mean, that's exactly right. So you sell either yourself or your children into, and we see this all over the world today. We're all horrified, I know, but we see it all over the world today. People giving up a child, putting her into prostitution. Because they're paid and they can't feed another mouth or giving a son for 
you know, slave labor today because they can't afford another mouth. This is what happened in the ancient world. This is what happened in ancient Israel. The prophets are very upset that the folks who have a bunch of money don't care that regular Israelites are having to sell themselves into indentured servitude or sell worse, sell their land. Right? Okay. So let's listen to Amos. Listen to this. You who devour the needy, annihilating the poor of the land, saying, if only the new moon, Rosh Chodesh, were over so that we could sell grain, the Sabbath, so that we could offer wheat for sale, using an ephod that is too small and a shekel that is too big, tilting a dishonest scale, and selling grain refuse as grain. We will buy the poor for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. The Lord swears by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget any of their doings. Shall not the earth shake for this and all that dwell on it mourn? Shall it not all rise like the Nile and surge and subside like the Nile of Egypt? And in that day, declares my Lord God, I will make the sun set at noon. I will darken the earth on a sunny day. Canal explains uh, parts of that farming territory were very muddy and you couldn't farm it without sandals. You couldn't walk in it without sandals. It would kind of serve to hold you up in the mud. And so people who couldn't afford, they would, they would borrow money to buy a pair of sandals for their, to work their field. And what are they saying? We will buy the poor for a pair of sandals, meaning we give them sandals. They now owe us. They can't pay us. So guess what? For this pair of sandals I gave somebody, I now acquired them as my slave. This is what Amos is criticizing. Let's look at Isaiah. Why, when we fasted, did you not see? When we starved our bodies, you paid no heed. Because on your fast day, you see to your business and oppress all your laborers. Because you fast in strife and contention and you strike with a wicked fist. Your fasting today is not such as to make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast I desire? A day for people to starve their bodies? Is it bowing the head like a bulrush and lying in sackcloth and ashes, which they were doing? Right? Oh, I'm nothing before you. I've sinned. I've sinned. Meanwhile, talking business. Right? Do you call that a fast? A day when God is favorable? No. This is the fast I desire, to unlock fetters of wickedness and untie the cords of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break off every yoke. It is to share your bread with the hungry and to take the wretched poor into your home. When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to ignore your own kin, then shall your light burst through like the dawn and your healing spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall march before you. The presence of Adonai shall be your rear guard. Then when you call, Yodhevavhe will answer. When you cry, God will say, here I am. If you banish the yoke from your midst, the menacing hand and evil speech, and you offer your compassion to the hungry and satisfy the famished creature, then shall your light shine in darkness and your gloom shall be like noonday. Yodhevavhe will guide you always will slake your thirst in parched places and give strength to your bones. 
You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring whose waters do not fail. So what we're seeing here are the prophets, and they don't just use any examples. They use real examples of what they see happening. We might talk about it as when you give a mortgage to someone you know can't pay it and you cause a ballooning in the real estate, right? So like we, you know, we, we would use different examples, but notice what are they calling out? They're calling out that bad behavior to the poor, but what are they also calling out? On Rosh Chodesh, you can't wait for it to be over. On Shabbat, you can't wait for it to be over. These people are not breaking Shabbat. These people are keeping Shabbat. They are keeping Rosh Chodesh. They are lying in sackcloth and ashes and weeping over how terrible they've been and starving themselves. They are absolutely keeping the law, the ritual law. So the prophets are criticizing that if you only are concerned about ritual relationship to yud heh you have missed the point of what yud heh actually wants from you. You can't be just concerned with ritual. That's hypocrisy. And yet, yet you're stealing. The minute Shabbos is over, you're going to go take somebody because they can't pay you back for the sandals. So you're going to claim them as your slave. You technically have kept every single ritual law of kashrut, of sacrifice, of Shabbat, of Chagim, of all of it. Do we know people like this? You keep every single law and you completely ignore the suffering of those who don't have. It's kind of ignoring the Torah as an ethical way of behaving. Because it wasn't till now. Yes. That's what Knoll is arguing. When it becomes concretized, when a ritual becomes the law, you create the division that we see today in Israel, for example. Well, it... For the holiness school, the, the ritual being law is fine. That's fine. Keep my Shabbat, God says in the holiness code. You shall keep my Shabbat. You shall not, I forget what the word, I think despoil, you know, my Shabbat. You must eat your sacrifice by the third day. Like it, you have to keep the ritual law. Absolutely. However, now, Ethical, moral behavior becomes an understanding in the holiness code as the other part of how one is kadosh. You can see in this why I agree with Knoll. When you read the prophetic material, there's no way you can tell me the holiness code is not responding to this. This is so relevant to today's politics. It is a message. To the Republican. <laughs> Spoken by our wise elder. Jeremiah, when I freed your father, your ancestors from the land of Egypt, I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifice. This is what I commanded them. Do my bidding that I may be your God and you may be my people. Walk only in the way that I enjoin you upon you, that it may go well with you. So Jeremiah is saying, we had an understanding of being God's people before we had any of this sacrifice business, right? Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, what did you do from sacrifice and temple and incense and blah, 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 that the priests are so obsessed with? We didn't have that. Okay. 
it was walking with God that made you a priestly, a priestly, a uh, holy people, uh, right? Okay. So, so this is, I gave you Knoll's uh, argument from, by someone named David Corder, who's giving you, um, uh, this beautiful quote from Knoll, but says, Isaiah attacks sacrifice and other priestly procedures as offensive to God's holiness. The holiness code takes a more both and approach. Holiness does mean keeping meticulous ritual procedures, but it also means loving your fellow Israelite and treating them right. Right. And the holiness code called upon, as Mark said, call Adat B'nai Israel, all the people to be holy, not just the priests to be involved in this Kadosh business. While the priestly code reached new heights of abstraction, right? P never anthropomorphizes God. It is a place of abstraction and sublimity in thinking about God. Yes. Its message about God was aimed at a select few. Only a handful of people could reach the religious summits of the priestly Torah. The holiness school, however, bursts the walls of the sanctuary and turns to the people as a whole. It relinquishes religious sublimity and embraces popular custom so that he's quoting knoll there all right so here's to your point david and to you i hope laura is that the opening this is knoll the opening of parsha kadoshim declares that all of israel should be sanctified because god is sanctified you are to imitate god and if you're to imitate god you must behave in the ways that god behaves and that's understood to be ethical and moral. Godding. This umbrella statement is followed by a list of many different commandments, some of which are ritually based, while others are ethical. The inclusion of ethics and justice in the category of sanctity and the aiming of the call for sanctity towards the entire nation are interconnected ideas in the writings of the holiness school. Once the concept of sanctity becomes relevant to the entire people of Israel, it is no longer limited to issues surrounding the sanctity of the temple or the priesthood, right? Um, Yahweh, the sanctified God, separated Israel out from other nations to be gods, their pot, gods meaning belonging to God, thereby creating a special bond between God and Israel. This is expressed to your, this is expressed in the mitzvot that God gives Israel. And with these mitzvot, God sanctifies the people. Here's the important thing in this quote for me. This is not a one-time act wherein God grants Israel a permanent status of Kedusha, of sanctity. But it is a constant process whereby God grants sanctity to a people who observe mitzvot. In other words, I've called you to be special to me. I've called you to be a holy people. You will behave the way I tell you you're supposed to behave, to be like me, to be more like God. Okay, great. That makes you a holy people. It is always and forever conditional. You'll, you'll get made holy and then you're holy. Doesn't work that way. It is conditional on you continuing to behave. If this week you're holy, mazel tov. You still have next week. You can't just turn around next week and do what you want and say, oh, but, but we're a holy people. So like, no, your holiness is completely contingent on your behavior. Okay. Did that work, David, Laura? I'm actually curious what happens to Amos. I'm, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> We're talking out like this. Yeah. It generally, just let me give you a hint, it doesn't work out so well for them. I I buy it from a literary perspective. I buy your argument. I think the challenge I have is sitting here today, not 
believing that God's telling me what to do, but that it it's in this book and this piece of writing, God's telling them what to do to be holy. I get that. But so I guess the challenge is reading it now and taking as, um, Guidance. Yeah. These, I, I, I'm down with this. This sounds like things you should do to be holy. Maybe not the thing about the payas. I, so how to read it then with, I don't think it's required to be in right relationship with God. I just think it's right to do, but right. you know, so those, two, those are two separate things. I, yeah. I think right. my answer is, is using predicate theology for a second. Sometimes I'm a predicate theologian. Sometimes I'm not, but in this moment, I'm going to be a predicate theologian and say, what do I define God as? If I define God as the power, like Kaplan, the power that makes for goodness, the power that makes for justice, the power that makes for compassion, the power that makes for forgiveness, the power that makes for equity, the power that makes for transformation. If I consider God, if I predicate about God, all of those things, then the question for me always is, what would living in line with those things demand of me? For me, that's how I understand God commands me to behave like this, to be holy. If I define God as the power that makes, yes. If I define God as the power that makes for goodness, the power that makes for compassion, the power that makes for equity, if I was to live in line with that, what would it demand of me in any given situation? That's how I understand Amy Bernstein sometimes, (laughs) maybe most of the time. That's how I understand God commands me. Okay. To do this, that, and the other. Gotcha. And I think what what Amos, what all these prophets are doing, is bringing back ethical behavior. But right, what I'm saying is, yeah. is it's a revolution. Okay. Ethical behavior was not tied to holiness. It was that's what this whole shiur is really. I really got it when I read Knoll this time. When I read Zornberg this time, I really got it. Like the, there was no ethical dimension to what it meant to be holy. Right, but that's about purity, right? So Kedusha was all about purity. For the first time, the revolution here is that ethics and morals are a part of holiness. That is a revolution in thought. It's sneaky. Um, and it's a response to the folks who were yelling and screaming about it who did not fare very well, right? Because who wants, who wants to listen to the critic? I think this discussion sort of helps me understand why um, when I was questioning some of my daughter-in-law's Mishigash, you know, because they follow all these mitzvot. And she said to me, well, because I said, what's going to happen to you if you don't do that? Which in my head, I'm thinking that ridiculous thing that you're doing. Because <laughs> you're not supposed to say that as the mother-in-law. Okay. But she... <laughs> She and she said it it elevates my soul. And so I think this whole discussion is kind of helping me understand what she means by that. Mm-hmm. Good. Good. No, that right? Every every bit is helpful. I, I also really love this like reversal of Kadosha as set apart. Like if in some ways we're Amos and Isaiah are pointing out, like we went too far with the set apartness. Like it was mm-hmm. too set apart and we've got to like pull it back. And I do, to your point, sort of wonder if some of those mitzvot that feel um, very particular are a way of like pulling the threads together, because if it's always present and it's always in your life, it's harder to push away and like over set apart. Nice. Nice. So set apart has its 
place, but don't y'all get too set apart. Don't you, don't you forget the person who's sleeping outside on sunset. You owe them your care and concern and money to be able to house them. Daphna? I have a question about the kind of creation of this ethical code. Um, what about the Ten Commandments? What about like not murdering? Was that, didn't that create ethical behavior that, that Am Israel was required to abide by? Yes. So it's not that they didn't have any understanding about things you shouldn't do. First of all, one of those is in the Decalogue. Uh, what the Decalogue? Both are the Decalogue. Um, so one is in Deuteronomy, right? So the only other one we have not from the Deuteronomist is in Exodus. Um, so there is an understanding that there's things you shouldn't do. It is not tied to Kedusha. There's an understanding that predates the priestly Torah and the prophets. There's an understanding that there's things you shouldn't do. Fine. It's not tied to Kedusha. It's not tied to a concept of holiness. The revolution of the H school is tying ethical, moral behavior to the concept of being a holy people. Does that make sense, Daphna? Yeah. Don't smack each other in the head. Just don't do it. Don't smack each other in the head and you become to me a nation that is holy. That is behavior that is reflective of holiness is a different concept. It's a, it's a evolution of that concept. It's not that there was no understanding of right and wrong. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to skip Zornberg. Um, but, but what you need to know from Zornberg, which I found really lovely, um, is that she really talks about, and she takes it from Rashi and Sforno and Ramban, like our classical commentators. She says the whole purpose, this is Sforno on Rashi, the whole purpose of Yitziat Mitzrayim is this movement. The basic, meaning klal, the general aspiration of God for the Jewish people is that they should be holy. That is God's desire and yearning. This is the purpose of the Exodus, as well as the revelation at Sinai. And she says it's the practice of becoming. And she says this is the whole point, according to you know the development that we finally get here at the holiness school place, that that is the whole point of the formation of the people of Israel. The exodus from Egypt is so that they could achieve this aspirational holiness. It is aspirational constantly because if i don't talk bad about other people does that mean it never happens i know it's hard to believe but it does it we slip so the idea is that kadusha stays aspirational that i should talk less about other people than i do now right that i should be more careful of wasting people's time that's theft stealing people's time is theft so do i really need to make this phone call do I really need to bother this person with this? Right. You know, is it, can it wait? Is it something I can just send an email? They can get to it when they want, right? All we are, we are constantly asked, says Zornberg, to aspire to being more than we are now. And we cannot imagine she talks about music. What if you wanted to love classical music and you don't, right? I took a class at Northwestern, opera appreciation, because I couldn't stand opera. But what if I became someone who liked opera? Well, to do that, I'm going to have to go take a class. 
on appreciation because I can't do that by myself. But I don't know anything really about who that person's going to be who loves opera. And she says, that's what we're dealing with with Kedusha. It's aspirational. And we don't know who we're going to be as we move more and more into the habits that support living a life of Kedusha, which is just beautiful to me. All right. So we'll close with Jonathan Sachs. Above all, be holy means have the courage to be separate, different. God is, and he said, he has more before this that says, so we're going to be like God. God is in, but not of the world. So we are called on to be in, but not of the world. We don't worship nature. We don't worship fashion. We don't behave like everyone else just because everyone else does. We don't conform. We dance to a different music. We don't live in the present. We don't live in the present. Listen to Sachs. Unbelievable. We remember our people's past and help build our people's future. Not by accident does the word kadosh also have the meaning of marriage, kiddushin, because to marry means to be faithful to one another as God pledges God's self to be faithful to us and we to God, even in the hard times. To be holy means to bear witness to the presence of God in our and our people's lives. Israel, the Jewish people, is the people who in themselves give testimony to one beyond ourselves. To be Jewish means to live in the conscious presence of the God we can't see, but consent as the force within ourselves, urging us to be more courageous, just, and generous than ourselves. That's what Judaism's rituals are about, reminding us of the presence of the divine. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.